podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree and ETS sponsor. Joining me in our Warren Studio today is Lee Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Discussion is not tied to the Office of Investment Products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. A really interesting, very topical show today. Lee Chen uh, comes from China, and we have a lot of China versus the U.S. conversations. We have Trump's trade team talking to China's trade team. They're trying to avoid a, a trade dispute, trade war, settle the tensions, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and they're being closely watched by the markets. We've had during last year, you had a, a number of stories between the Fed hiking rates and then this worry about a global trade war. And so we're very lucky. Um, Li Chen uh, invited Ding Ding Chen onto the show today. And he's really a he's, he's in China professor there. And uh, I will, I'll give I'll let Li Chen give their background together. But I'm just reading his bio quickly. Ding Ding Chen is a professor of international relations and the associate dean of the Institute for 21st Century Silk Road Studies at Jinan University in Guangzhou, China. He's a founding director of Inteliza Institute, a newly established think tank focusing on international affairs in China. His research interests are Chinese foreign policy, Asian security, Chinese politics, human rights. Uh, and he also has a particular interest on the U.S. political elections. Uh, he got known for profiled a few years ago in the L.A. Times for correctly predicting Trump uh, as the U.S. president when it was a non-consensus view. Uh, it was profiled for that prediction. And so he was a very close uh, political watcher. And, and Lee Chen, how did you uh, get to know Ding Ding? So Ding Ding and I, we go way back. Um, he graduated from um, international economics from Renmin University of China. But uh, we got to know each other at the campus of University of Chicago. He was uh, getting a PhD in um, political science from the from University of Chicago. And we both live in the international house, which is a very uh, interesting place where people from different countries live with a shared kitchen. And uh, I remember Ding Ding's room has books piled high and always afraid to go to his room because I'm afraid the books might fall on me. (laughs) Well, welcome to our show, Ding Ding. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Um, so maybe you could tell us. Uh, so you got you got known for that prediction on on Trump. Maybe you could just walk us through, you know, what led you to those views, how you were researching, um, what was the dynamic back then, and uh, and then we can sort of talk a little bit about how you're reading the dynamic now. Okay, thank you. Well, uh, it's been a while now, so uh, it's uh, let me try to recall what we did uh, back uh, uh, almost three years ago. I think maybe part of part of the reason was that uh, I was, you know, uh, in China, so far away from the U.S., and so we were uh, able to uh, read newspapers and stories not from the U.S. perspective, but from the um, sort of outsider perspective. And I think uh, in early 2016, Trump was already uh, making a very strong. Uh, you know, uh, position uh, with his rhetoric, so on and so forth, and he did very well. If I remember correctly, he did very well in the primaries, and um, even before he was finally confirmed as the GOP candidate, he was, um, you know, showing some uh, real uh, strengths uh, compared with other candidates. So at least at then there was, um, in my view, the possibility that he he was electable. Even though he was behind Hillary Clinton, 
the number of polls, uh, you know, so on and so forth. But his base was uh, quite uh, supportive of him, and um, that gave us uh, some, uh, you know, confidence in, in, in uh, you know, thinking about his uh, uh, eventual uh, winning. And then I think by the end of uh, August and then the, in, the, in the early uh, September, and his uh, polls and his other you know numbers were uh, actually improving a little bit, despite all these scandals like you know the talk, talk show scandal, so on and so forth. And, and the, the the killer, of course, was uh, Comey's uh, letter to uh, you know the uh, Comey's decision to reinvestigate uh, Hillary Clinton's email scandal. I think that was the final uh, break that uh, Trump got. And uh, also, I think partly because uh, Lichi and I, uh, you know, we, we go back to way back to Chicago and we, we were from the Midwest. And in the final days of the election, we were paying attention to some of the states in the Midwest because those, those were the traditionally uh, blue uh, blue states. But uh, uh, the Trump supporters were quite uh, active in those states, including Wisconsin, Michigan, and a little bit of a uh, uh, Pennsylvania. So we, we did a calculation. If Trump could win all those, um, you know, traditional uh, blue states, he could very well, uh, you know, be, uh, uh, you know, uh, winning the, the whole election. So, but again, it, it's not the popular votes because we we understand that Hillary Clinton actually won the popular votes, but because of the uh, the system, the Electoral College actually uh, gave Trump the victory. So, anyways, I, I think the point uh, now looking back uh, is. Um, there are some uh, underlying, you know, political forces uh, within the U.S. and possibly also in China that are actually uh, quite important and that deserve our uh, more attention. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, the Midwest angle. Uh, I I I'm trying to learn about the media landscape in the U.S. Uh, after living here. This does feel a little bit uh, East Coast bias in terms of reporting in the U.S. Uh, as a whole country. Because my feeling when I was living in the Midwest was that, you know, the news coming out or the the kind of things people pay attention to was somewhat ignored uh, by the national media, uh, which are usually uh, East Coast based. I don't know, Jeremy, do you have any? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's probably true. The coast, West Coast, East Coast, uh, both both extremes, it's probably... Uh, uh, very true. Uh, Ding Ding, one of the things that the LA Times article concluded with, and uh, it, it's an interesting question um, today, is it even possible? Would, would you get movements this way? Um, but you, you talked about you wouldn't throw out the impeachment uh, potential for Trump. Is that something, given all the political dynamics now with the Democrats you know, getting the House, but given the Senate uh, where it is, is that still something you think is actually a possibility today? Yes, it's actually, I would say, even uh, more than a possibility. It's also uh, quite likely uh, that he would face impeachment in many different ways, maybe. Uh, I think the main reason, I think, is, as you said, Democrat, Democrats are controlling the House now. They're looking at next year, the 2020 elections, and what would, it, what would be the best strategy to bring Trump down and to, to win back the White House, I think uh, one of the strategies is to, uh, you know, make him um, you know, more defensive in, in, on, many, on many fronts. So he has to face a lot of, uh, you know, tough questions from the investigation team, including the Mueller team, so on and so forth. I think impeachment would be um, Democrats' uh, good strategy. Of course, it can backfire if uh, the supporters of Trump uh, feel that he, he would be uh, uh, victimized. But anyway, I think uh, impeachment is more likely than uh, at least the last year, uh, this time. Now, how would you read the political situation in China and the the ongoing dispute? So if if you're looking at all the headlines and we're trying to come to a deal... Um, you see what what how, how would you just read the, the negotiations that are happening and um, what you think the China wants to get out of the deals where the U.S. is and and how how just your read of that current situation? Uh, yes, it's it's a very good question. It's a very very complicated as we have been following the news. Uh, I think that all of us have been following very closely uh, for the last year. I mean, the whole year of 2018 was very chaotic for China and, and the, to some degree for uh, U.S.-China relations, mainly because of the trade war, but also 
because of other, uh, I think, long-term trends of the relationship. Uh, remember back in, in 2017, uh, when the two presidents actually met uh, twice, two times, um, and uh, it went quite well, I guess, for, for both of them. But at the end of the 2017, the U.S. Uh, government and the several uh, agencies, including the uh, Department of Defense, uh, issued uh, some very strong documents outlining the uh, upcoming so-called uh, strategic competition between the U.S. and China. Uh, so therefore, when, when we enter the 2018, uh, the trade conflict, the trade war, uh, no longer, uh, uh, in my view, uh, was uh, surprising because that was you know, a necessary part of the long-term strategic competition uh, from the U.S. perspective. So China was actually quite, uh, in a way, maybe the government was uh, uh, surprised by this um, in, in the early half of the 2018. Uh, I remember when last February and around the Chinese New Year time, uh, Vice Premier Liu He uh, came to the U.S. and uh, tried to negotiate a deal. Obviously, it didn't uh, work out. And by the way, he's coming again, I guess, uh, by the end of this year, again, around the Chinese New Year time to... Try you know, again, try to work out a deal, but uh, we'll see what would happen. So last year, I think the first half was uh, a surprise uh, for the Chinese uh, government because the U.S. government was very determined to, um, you know, to use this uh, trade conflict or trade war to uh, reset the U.S.-China relations. Uh, but then, you know, uh, in July, and I remember back in June, mid-June, I was giving a series of, uh, series of lectures in Shanghai, and I was telling all these, uh, some of the business people that uh, the, the, the Trump administration was quite serious about uh, the tariffs uh, uh, with China, and nobody was uh, actually uh, uh, you know, convinced by, by our assessment, but then it turned out indeed that the U.S. government was you know, very, very serious about tariffs. So in July, they hit China with, the, I think, at least $50 billion. U.S. dollar tariffs, and uh, they it, it, it escalated, and with uh, more tariffs, a bit of uh, you know, uh, uh, retaliation from the Chinese side uh, until today. Uh, but uh, the trade war or, or the trade conflict uh, now might have a chance to to be not uh, officially over, but at least to enter a period of uh, choose, I believe. Uh, for both uh, domestic regions in both countries. Uh, first, in China, uh, the main reason is the economy is uh, slowing down uh, actually quite uh, quite a lot. I mean, last year was uh, quite uh, difficult for many of the uh, companies in China, in, uh, particularly those exports-oriented uh, companies. Uh, in my home province, Guangdong, and other coastal provinces, and also some uh, huge tech companies are facing a lot of pressure, uh, either uh, maybe both because of domestic uh, you know, financial uh, uh, repression and, uh, and the squeezing and also uh, trade war uh, uh, pressures from the U.S. So the economy is slowing down, and that is actually the most important thing for the Chinese government. The government needs to maintain a healthy rate of growth in order to uh, produce jobs, you know, to maintain social stability and all that. And on the U.S. side, I think the Trump is also uh, concerned about uh, the economy, particularly as we go into the, uh, you know, presidential election cycle sometime maybe in, in, in the summer this year. So he also faces the pressure to uh, cut a deal, whether it's not, uh, whether it's the best deal or maybe second best deal with China. So for both countries, both governments, they, they face a lot of pressure yeah. uh, to at least uh, resolve this, you know, dispute uh, for now, but not uh, not in the long run. It will come back, but for now. Let, let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Ding Ding Chen, who's the professor of international relations and associate dean of Institute for 21st Century Silk Road Studies at Yunnan University. Uh, and, and so it's interesting. Last year, you know, for the beginning part of the year. Trump could say, my trade my trade war is only impacting China. It's not impacting us. Before through September, China's markets were like leading the global equity markets down. Um, and they were still, at the end of the year, the worst performing market of the major stock markets around the world down. The Shanghai Composite was down around 25%. Uh, 
um, and a lot of emerging markets sort of just traded off in tandem. The U.S. had a bad December, bad fourth quarter, um, but still was only down about 5%. But certainly it felt that December was a very sharp slowdown and, and sort of catching up with some of those international markets. I'm curious, you know, when Leisha and I were talking about inviting you on the show, um, you had or she thought you had a timeline on when you thought the dispute would be all resolved. Um, and obviously, we don't know all the negotiations back and forth, and it's very uh, it's hard to make all these predictions. Um, but tr- Trump put a sort of Q1, end of Q1 deadline, wanted to get it settled by March. Um, what's your sense of how soon you think we'll come to a resolution? Uh, I think, yes, by March, we could very well see a reasonable deal that could uh, both satisfy Trump and, and maybe some of his uh, advisors um, for, for momentarily, and also the Chinese government uh, uh, for, for, for the moment. But then again, I, I don't think it's a, it's a final deal because the underlying you know, trade conflicts or, or frictions are still there. They will come back. But I think for both uh, domestic uh, urgent uh, reasons, you, you have to uh, enter a period of choose before you can uh, start the, the you know trade war again. So I think by March, um, if um, you know the current trends hold, I think the China would uh, agree to buy a lot more U.S. products. They already promised this, but that's not enough. They would open more uh, markets to U.S. companies, including auto, insurance, financial, so on and so forth. They would. Um, also by U.S. Uh, more uh, energy products, they would uh, uh, make some, uh, you know, adjustments with regard to its uh, domestic economic uh, system. And it's a long-term effort, of course, and nothing uh, would uh, satisfy the chamber administration uh, in the near term. But uh, as long as they see some progress, I think it's uh, it's an okay deal for them. Uh, so, but then again, I think... If, a real good deal, I think, would take uh, much longer. Maybe uh, if we get lucky, I mean, maybe by by the end of this year, 2019, we could have a uh, you know midterm deal that could really be good for both countries. But I'm not quite optimistic. But I think uh, some, somewhat good deal by March and even they could extend the negotiation deadline. I believe, by the way to into June or even uh, later if they wanted to keep this open. Uh, but anyway, I think this year, by March or by June, uh, they could uh, uh, make a deal that could be uh, reasonably good for both countries. Now, now you know, the, the people here in the U.S. will understand our 2020 election cycle with, with uh, the, the new elections for the president. Um, but what do you th- can you help us understand China's political dynamic and what is President Xi uh, thinking about in terms of his, you know, the, a lot of people say he was just elected as as ruler for life um, in some of the changes that happened. Um, what, what, how do you just describe the political dynamics and the political pressures besides for the slowing economy, the 25% fall in the stock market? So that might be, you know, raising people's anxiety. But what is his actual political pressures internally in China? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, being here in China, we... Uh, I'm mostly concerned about uh, uh, the economy, the growth, uh, because that's the fundamental thing that keeps the society stable and keeps people, relatively speaking, uh, satisfied. If you don't have growth or you have a growth that is below, let's say, 5%, then it's going to be a big trouble for for the government also for the uh, society. Uh, but also, I think another issue is um, that some of the policies, even though they look good on paper, but they don't get uh, implemented or they don't get implemented in the in the right ways. So some of the reform policies, for example, still remain more or less on, on the paper. And I think that's another pressure that we, we are facing here. Uh, I think we have entered, according to the government, the so-called deep water zone, which means uh, reforms are getting more and more difficult because they would involve uh, interest groups, vested interests that, you know, they naturally resist the reforms. So it's difficult to redistribute uh, benefits of reform because the easy ones have been done already. 
the difficult ones, uh, um, you know, here, and we need uh, political will, of course, on the part of the top leadership to implement the necessary reforms. So in a way, ironically, people say here the trade war is uh, sometimes maybe a good thing because it forces, you know, the, the, the government, the leadership to reconsider uh, the reform agenda. And maybe that could be a good thing if uh, we get some of the much-needed reforms uh, finally uh, implemented. I think that's the number two risk that we are facing now. And obviously, there's also the, the danger, you know, economists maybe, uh, 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 Wall Street and other people have been talking about the, uh, this year, maybe there's a global financial, uh, I'm not, I don't know, crisis or, or, or um, you know, problem. And in China, that certainly is a danger because we have, you know, we have seen the stock market going down for the last year, the whole year. We have seen uh, firms, including middle-sized and small-sized firms, uh, unable to get uh, funding uh, from the uh, banking sector and other sectors. So if there is some sort of a financial, not even crisis, instability in China, that could be uh, further uh, damage to the already fragile economic growth. So we, we, are, we are in this uncertain uh, period. I think a lot of people are concerned and even worried about the uh, the economic side, in addition to those, you know, the other two problems. We're talking with Ding Ding Chen, Professor of National Relations, Associate Dean, at the 21st Century Silk Road Studies at Jinan University. Um, you know, it's interesting, um, Li Shen, you talked about, you know, the trade war being viewed positively in by some in the China. Uh, maybe, maybe just remind, just re- rehash some of your views on that. Yes, I, I share the same view. I think... Um, Trade war, of course, first I don't like the word trade war. I think uh, these kind of trade, it's better to uh, frame it as a trade dispute because these kind of disputes will be going on years and years. And I, I, uh, I, you know, defer to Ding Ding in terms of having some deal, but I'm sure, you know, two years down the road, there will be some other disputes. I think that is probably a natural process when you have an economy which is up and coming versus the U.S., which is the leader in the economy. And China is likely to compete in many aspects with the U.S., which is not necessarily a bad thing because, you know, one of the fundamentals of economics is that competition is actually good for people. It, it could be painful for some people, but overall, as a country, I think competition could be you know, good for both uh, countries. So that um, in, in Chinese uh, social media, it's pretty obvious that uh, uh, a lot of social media um, uh, uh, posts is about how this trade war, you know, coming from the U.S. actually has improved some of the lives of the Chinese um, on some aspects. For example, you know, tariffs and custom taxes for drugs and for cars, those have been coming down, which have benefited uh, Chinese uh, consumers. So I, I'm, uh, I, I completely agree with uh, Dinding on this. I think um, one of the uh, things touch on China is that in China, the theme this year is, you know, slowing economy. Uh, what, where could the reform go? So one of the things that uh, makes a little bit people uneasy is a lot of uh, U.S. or international firms, because of this risk, they are trying to move some of their uh, business operations from China to other countries like Vietnam, which is on right borders China. And I want to get Dinian's view in terms of, you know, how do you see that? Is it a, a, a very, um, uh, it is a big problem or it's not really that big a problem that China has this uh, logistical system in place that, you know, it's very hard for a lot of global firms to completely abandon manufacturing in China. Um, the second question I have is about tax reform. And I know that uh, I talked to Patty here that, you know, everybody loves the tax cuts, tax cuts. My dad complains about tax cuts, taxes in China, which is a little bit new because 10 or 20 years ago, the tax law is on the papers, but not very widely enforced. But now the government is enforcing uh, uh, all these tax laws, and it's getting a lot of resentments from 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 ordinary Chinese people. So I want to get your view on that. Thank you. Oh, great. Um, thank you. Uh, the first question, I think, is a real concern for many 
firms in China, not only international firms, but also some of the uh, domestic firms, because they also face they also face the same pressures of uh, the trade dispute or trade war. And but at the moment, I think uh, I've talked to some business people and people who own firms uh, in China from Europe and the U.S. and so on. At the moment, I think only. I don't have the exact figure, but I think only maybe one tenth of the firms uh, maybe varies across regions. I mean, Guang, I mean Guangdong, there you know firms in Shanghai. Maybe a very small uh, percentage of firms are actually uh, doing the relocation or actually thinking serious about the relocation. Again, it's because of all these uncertainties uh, with regard to the trade war between U.S. and China and the future competition. And many of them are um, still looking and still debating, and they try to, uh, you know, wait and see, and maybe six more months and one one more year to finally decide whether it is, um, you know, wise to move, move out of China to uh, another country in Asia or, or elsewhere. It's actually not a easy decision because, you know, once you are in this, you know, area region for a long period of time, you already know the uh, other, you know, business partners, so on and so forth. Even if you move out of China to places, countries like Vietnam, you are going, you are entering a new new country. You are going to face a new, uh, you know, culture, new environment, and new, you know, law and government system. All those, you know, issues and maybe can become uh, problems um, for for the company. So unless the cost of um, you know trade war and trade pressures are so high that they have to move out move out of China, then. That would finally happen, but at the moment, a lot of the firms are still uh, trying to figure out what exactly would happen in the next three you know, months, in the next half year, maybe in the next year. And if the trade uh, dispute or, or war between U.S. and China sort of uh, um, you know ends or, 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 or will we'll, we'll move to a, a choose, and I think uh, a lot of companies will choose to stay. But still, they would really consider seriously what other options would be available for them if in the future all these trade pressures come back. Because that certainly, as you said, is a long-term, is a long-term uh, development. Uh, about test cars, uh, you know, as we were saying, one of the good things, you know, that's coming, uh, coming out of the trade war uh, is actually the, the, the test cars, uh, I believe. And because a lot of the companies, firms, mostly uh, non-state-owned firms, are complaining about uh, the current financial environment that they face uh, within China, uh, plus the trade pressures coming from outside, they are really struggling to uh, some of them to to even survive. Not not to mention you know how to grow, and so they have complained a lot to the government. I think. Together with the trade pressure, together with the tax cuts in the U.S., and the Chinese government finally decided to uh, change the tax policy, uh, at least for some of the firms, uh, particularly uh, medium and small size firms, because they need capital uh, much more than the big, uh, you know, state-owned companies. So, and, and also for individuals, for Chinese ordinary Chinese like like me and like my parents and friends, they're also at least uh, um, a little bit happy about this uh, new policy because we have been paying a lot of taxes over the years and uh, uh, basically uh, the government is getting uh, richer and richer uh, where at the same time uh, the society and the individuals are, are not you know, uh, benefiting from the, the, the growth of the environment as much as the, maybe the government. But mm-hmm. there's this... Uh, uh, you know, inequality between uh, the state sector and the non-state sector. And finally, you know, I think most people, honor people, they will see this as a response to the uh, trade war coming from the U.S. Uh, so that's why people say, okay, this may be one of the good things about the trade war. Without this pressure, some of the policies cannot, uh, you know, uh, be uh, implemented by, by the uh, government voluntarily. They, they needed to have some uh, outside uh, pressure in order to 
you know, at least reconsider some of the policies or change course. Yeah, that, that doesn't give you optimistic that the Chinese, like, there's the slowdown in China, there's the the equity market fall, which says, hey, there's pressure on G to get a deal done. And then there's like this element, which says, hey, the people are happy. They don't want to get a deal done. You have, is Trump's constituents happy he's fighting China or do they want him to get a deal done too? So it's, you know, that, that that's the risk of this thing prolonging is that if people, if they both view it's positive, right? If if the U.S. Uh, people think that the the, 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 the dispute is, is a positive dynamic, and the question is, are Trump's voters, his, his voting class, do they think it's positive versus what does the more general population, the economist trade, think nobody wants a trade war? Um, but you know, the question is, do they believe it? it's going to help their political? It's a very interesting question. Uh, so we appreciate all your all your insights there. Now, one of the things that um, I, I believe you just published the Chinese edition of Graham Allison's book, um, Destined to War. We, we had Graham uh, on our show last year, a very interesting book talking about the history of uh, you know, he calls the Th- Thucydides trap, which is like the rise of this up and coming power versus the established. So China's up and coming um, threat to the U.S. overtake sort of world dominating power. And and Allison looked back the last 500 years and there was 16 times the rising power threatened the established power. And in 12 of those 16 times, it led to war. So the odds, if you're just looking back at history does not look good. Um, so 75% of the time you had this thing lead to war. And uh, we sort of talked to him about what is the critical, you know, there's always a preceding event that did it. And uh, we asked him, what is your preceding event? And he thought Kim Jong-un as sort of the, the leading candidate. And he gave, you know, examples of the 1914 assassination that didn't matter, but sparked a fire that burned down Europe. Um, what's if you said, um, I mean, maybe you sort of talk about why you translated the book, what your thoughts on the book generally are. Oh, great. I'm glad uh, Graham also uh, was was on your show uh, last year because that was a, a, a fantastic book. And we uh, we were asked, asked by the Shanghai Publishing House to translate this book, I think, uh, early uh, 2018 because um, the, the book, the English book came out, I believe, sometime in 2017. Okay, but uh, the Chinese uh, community, scholars, even the government were already aware of the book, but uh, um, the publishing house thought it would be a great idea to to have a uh, you know, wider audience to get to know this book and, and his argument. So we were uh, asked to uh, do the translation job, and we were very happy to do that because, as you mentioned, this is really a uh, timely book about not only U.S.-China relations, but also about the future global order. Of course, we are all concerned about that. And uh, the timing would be perfect, actually. So we, we did a, uh, the translation uh, fairly quickly, and it came out just you know, uh, more than a month ago. And in December, uh, Graham actually came to China, and uh, we met in Shanghai, and also he went on to Beijing to give a a book tour about you know this, and uh, uh, he, he actually got a chance to meet some of the Chinese uh, top leaders in Beijing, and I think he uh, enjoyed his conversation with uh, various audience, including the government people. Um, so as, as you said, he looked at history with a number of cases, and uh, the history record uh, is not very optimistic. You have, uh, you know, 12 cases, you know, uh, which ended up with... Uh, Tragic conflicts, uh, but the good news is not all of them ended up uh, with uh, a war or serious uh, conf- military conflict. So, uh, most maybe more importantly, in the last century, uh, the two cases after um, you know the uh, World War II were uh, peaceful cases. So that might give us more confidence that in this century we have maybe more wisdom. We have more tools to resolve our difference in the conflict in a, in a more peaceful way. But I think he was also, uh, when during his trip in China, trying to find uh, various ways to uh, manage this relationship, particularly U.S.-China relationship. And I think he was asking even you know, uh, us and others in how to find ways to you know, cooperate. I think uh, that was a good uh, positive uh, step. And he, he even told us he probably already is in the process of writing another book, a sequel to this uh, tentative title. Uh, and 
I don't remember exactly the, the 10 ways to get out of the uh, sensitivities that check. Awesome. So I think that's a good uh, positive step. Um, in China, I think most people I have talked to or uh, met uh, think uh, very highly of this book. And um, uh, they, I think because of the trade war and the other conflicts and disputes in the relationship, uh, they also are puzzled by this new development. They wanted to know uh, whether and, and more importantly, how and China can uh, rise peacefully. Uh, despite the uh, you know unfavorable historical record, I think um, at the moment I think people are, are hopeful, and that's why you know we hear from the ordinary Chinese people they have you know sort of a different attitude towards the trade the dispute or war because they don't necessarily see that as a uh, as a bad thing as long as they can uh, benefit from uh, this. You know, you know, dispute or the uh, economy can benefit from dispute because I think uh, in the long run, people understand uh, some of the uh, policies uh, we have uh, today need to be uh, reformed. And I think um, I think Graham's uh, main message also uh, in the book, I remember uh, quite, uh, I was impressed, I was uh, uh, struck by his, one of his main messages uh, in the book, which was both countries, U.S. and China, should take care of their domestic matters first before they can uh, manage this relationship uh, in, a, in a more peaceful way. I think that that's a message that both governments can uh, or should pay more attention to. Uh, getting the domestic house in order is, is really, really a priority. Well, and that also sounds like the uh, the Trump message is America first, and uh, it's, it's sort of interesting that uh, one of the the big the big Harvard scholars on what the, that that dynamic is is suggesting that's the right strategy. So that that's interesting. Um, we're, we're, let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Ding Ding Chen, professor of international relations at Jinan University. Um, and you know, we've talked a lot about your your predictions of the elections, this trade dispute. Maybe we could talk a little bit about other things that you're working on. Um, I know you have founded a, a new think tank. Maybe you could tell us uh, a little bit about the uh, the institute and what you're working on, and, and, and sort of why you established it. Great. Uh, we have this uh, very small think tank in uh, in Guangzhou uh, today. Uh, we launched this think tank uh, back in 2015. Actually, the idea of the think tank uh, goes way back to uh, our time together with Li Chen in Chicago, because when we were graduates studying uh, our you know, PhDs in, at the University of Chicago, we established a student organization. Uh, I still remember the name. Yes. China Ultimate Studies Association. Closer. Yes, I remember I was the president uh, after you <laughs> and some of our yes, friends. Yes. yes. Right. So back then we were already very interested in you know, bringing uh, speakers from different fields, from other places to, to Chicago to talk about you know, various issues concerning China and uh, other countries, etc. So when I went to uh, uh, back to Asia in, in 2019 to teach at um, the University of Macau, and uh, Macau uh, was a very small place, and actually people there were very interested uh, mostly in uh, local issues, not so much international issues. So uh, as a professor of international relations, I found that uh, a little bit uh, limiting. So we, uh, along with uh, some other colleagues, wanted to explore uh, a set of uh, much broader issues, in- including global order, uh, international political economy, so on and so forth. So we decided uh, in 2015 to launch a new uh, sort of institution to uh, be able to uh, talk to a wider audience in, in mainland China and, uh, and nearby. So we did that uh, in Shenzhen. Uh, it's been three years so far, and I would say it's been a very uh, rewarding experience, even though, obviously, as you can imagine, as a sort of a startup, you face all these uh, common uh, you know, difficulties, struggles, so on and so forth. But uh, overall, I think it's a very uh, rewarding experience. It has broadened my own uh, research scope. Now I'm <laughs> interested in issues that I was not even uh, aware of uh, before from other disciplines like technology, uh, political economy is more familiar, but still not my field. 
And uh, we are now focused on three main uh, broad set of uh, uh, topics. One is my natural field, U.S.-China relations, because I'm, I'm, I've been working on this for a number of years. So that's one my 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 strengths and possibly my um, you know uh, main interest. And also we are focused on uh, geopolitical uh, risk analysis because we have seen many so-called black swan events in the world, including Brexit, Donald Trump, so on and so forth. I think the world is undergoing some sort of a major shift, and we have to pay attention to those uh, new risks. And a lot of them are not just the political or economic risks. They are sort of a, a hybrid and political economy risks, maybe. And because of that, and we are also entering a new period of um, new technologies, including big data, uh, quantum computing, uh, artificial intelligence, so on and so forth. So we are now actually also interested in how new technologies are shaping our society, our economies, our politics in a very you know, new and exciting and maybe uh, complex ways. So, uh, but as a very small think tank, we cannot cover uh, a lot of issues that we want to cover, but we, we want to be uh, you know, make, we want to make some contributions not only to the uh, academic field but also to some of the policy field. And, uh, and one of the uh, blessings is that being in Guang, Guangdong, one of the more uh, open-minded uh, areas in, in China next to Hong Kong, Macau, and uh, Southeast Asia, and we, we were, you know, we are able to interact more with outside uh, people, you know, companies, cultures. I think that's um, that's also important in this age of uh, globalization. Even though we have seen many uh, anti-globalization struggles. Um, for our listeners, I actually want to inject a little bit of knowledge on China, which might be uh, useful. So if you think about China uh, in terms of four growth areas, uh, Ding Ding is based on Guangzhou. Uh, most people think about the word Canton, mainly because uh, a lot of Chinese uh, or Chinese Americans in the U.S. came from this region. This has been historically a region where people have gone outside of China and seek you know, better opportunities or or. Uh, or, or very adventurous. So that's a region which sometimes is referred to as a, a Pearl River Delta area, which borders Hong Kong, Guangzhou, or Canton, or Shenzhen, which is uh, where um, a lot of new technology companies are based on. The other growth region... Including Huawei, as as that's in the news, maybe we should do one uh, on Huawei alone. Um, so a lot of a uh, very, uh, for example, Tencent, one of the biggest technology firm, uh, where the the app of WeChat is, you know, uh, everywhere on on Chinese phones. Um, they are all based on that region. Now the other three regions are uh, Beijing, which is political center, Beijing and Tianjin, uh, that area, and then the. The third is Shanghai, which is called the Yangtze River uh, Delta region. That area is also very interesting. It, that's where I came from, uh, Zhejiang province. That's where Alibaba is based on. That area has, historically has been the center of uh, culture. So, and also private companies. If you look at the, one, well, you know, the list of richest Chinese, you will see a huge concentration of uh, richest Chinese coming from uh, Zhejiang and Jiangsu, uh, Shanghai region. The fourth region is uh, Chongqing, which is not yet very well known, but the province uh, is very well known. It's called Sichuan. Uh, it's probably one of the biggest, uh, um, uh, cu- you know, uh, food uh, export in the U.S. Most people, when they think about Chinese food, it, they're actually thinking about Sichuan's, Sichuan food. So just to set this uh, in, in the context, um, actually, I want to uh, follow up on the name. I, I think the name of your think tank uh, is very interesting in Chinese. It's a high go to but there's a story behind it. Uh, would you share? I think it's a very interesting story. Yes, uh, the Chinese name high go to was uh, actually uh, a set of uh, uh, writings by the uh, famous historian uh, Wei Yuan in the late Qing Dynasty. And uh, around the time of uh, uh, 1840, when China was uh, first uh, forced to open to the outside world by uh, the British forces. 
so the historian Wei Yuan was given the task by then governor of uh, Canton, Lin Zexu, to uh, write a book about overseas countries. Basically, the idea was to tell the Chinese people we should open our eyes to the outside world because, you know, we have uh, we have lost the war, we have, you know, uh, been uh, humiliated because we have been so inward-looking. We, we, we were not opening our eyes to the world, and uh, that's the idea behind uh, the, this uh, Chinese name, Han Guo Tuzi. And we borrow this name uh, mainly because we, we think, and uh, even today, uh, as we live in the era of uh, globalization, with the internet, with everything, people tend to think we know a lot about outside world, but we think actually it's not uh, the case because we are still looking very much uh, inwardly, and we tend to focus a lot on our own domestic uh, issues, and we are not paying enough attention to the outside world, and uh, uh, there is still a gap between uh, the outside world and our understandings of them, and so we, we think it's uh, the second chance for us to open our eyes to the outside world, and uh, this time uh, we can do some things about this. I think, um, and, you know, from my narrow field of international relations, I think there, there are a lot of misunderstandings uh, maybe about each other between U.S. and China. And uh, those misunderstandings are huge problems if we cannot uh, resolve the, you know, these this differences and misperceptions uh, in a more uh, constructive way. It could lead to uh, disputes, conflict, and uh, even tragic uh, outcomes. So that's, I guess, in a way, uh, it summarizes our, our, our mission. So, Ding Ding, when you, um, one of the, the things that I, I know, you know, Lee Chen talked about some of the big companies like Tencent and Alibaba, and, you know, some of even the, the dispute, the, the sort of overall big picture dispute that the tension between the U.S. and China is over technology and China's view of trying to really grow their technology base, and they have some of the world's largest technology companies. Now, AI, uh, artificial intelligence, is one of these really big topics. And um, supposedly you've done some work on how it ties to just forecasting your uh, your study of, of political uh, political studies. What what's the connection? What's the the work ongoing on on how AI can help the the study of the political dynamics? Uh, I think AI is a lot of things, uh, right? It can be big data, it can be uh, quantum computing, it can be many other things that we are not even. Uh, aware of or we don't understand yet. I think the way it helps me or helps our research is um, that we want to combine uh, social science uh, research methods with uh, AI or or big data technology uh, to understand the social behaviors of, uh, for example, society members, governments, and other uh, actors within the society. Uh, this is possible, in my view, because we fundamentally believe that uh, human behaviors are, to a degree, predictable, as long as you have the big data available. For example, it's possible to predict voting behavior of, uh, um, for example, Americans based on their social behavior, whether they go to a church, whether they go to uh, a certain uh, area of, uh, um, you know, uh, for shopping, whether they go to um, a particular restaurant, uh, so on and so forth. And this was not possible in the pre-big data era. But now with all this data available, obviously there are some concerns with regard to privacy and all that transparency. But still, if you manage that problem uh, properly, the big data can help you. And I think that would help us also in China to understand and maybe able to even predict future trends of Chinese uh, uh, society and the Chinese, uh, the new generation of Chinese people. Uh, I think uh, based on the social data uh, we collect from uh, you know, social media, they, they are not so much different from their counterparts in the U.S. Uh, this you know, might be a little bit surprising for many people. But if you look at the data, it's telling that story because they listen to 
the same kind of music. They watch the same kind of uh, Hollywood movies. Maybe not the best choices. They travel to the same you know places around the world, uh, Europe, Japan, so on and so forth. They uh, share amazingly a number of uh, uh, you know common features, and that maybe in the long run, and that could uh, be positive because people uh, maybe can understand each other much better than what we can understand each other. Uh, now, because we we still lack the common sort of ties that can uh, bond us together, but for the next generation. But if you do have the big data, if you do use uh, technologies to to guide your research, you might be looking at a, a very different picture. Looking at the older generation people, you know, in the seventies and even older, so that might be uh, incomplete or, or even misleading. We're in our final few minutes, and while you're talking about big data and tracking and the ability to look at what restaurants people go to and and respond, there's been a story going around the U.S. uh, last month or so that I've seen people talk about on Twitter um, about the tracking of sort of these social media. Everybody's going to get a score in China. I don't know if you've been following this story that people are worried about the tracking and the government's tracking of every little activity that people are doing. Is that going around in China as well as it is in the U.S. on just fears of, of government tracking with big data every single action you take? Uh, I have read the story, and uh, uh, for us who live in China, it's uh, maybe a little bit different experience. Maybe that's happening, but that's not how I feel or how most other Chinese people feel. Uh I think maybe for, for, for some reasons. One reason, one main reason is probably because uh, it's still not implemented uh, you know, at, at the full scale. And maybe there's some pirates you know, uh, programs going on in, in some uh, small cities, but for most other people, they have not been affected yet. And we don't know about the future, of course. Um, but um, again, it's essentially sort of a complicated issue because here people, they have different degrees of you know, concerns. They have different, different yeah. degrees of uh, uh, privacy concerns and so on and so forth. And uh, um, so I think it would depend on how this uh, you know, credit, you know, social credit system eventually gets implemented if it's create, it would create a lot of the uh, privacy problems for other Chinese people, then probably that program would not end up very well received. Um, but so far, people are not paying adequate attention to this development yet. I mean, amidst of trade well, war and other issues. Uh, but it could be a serious concern in the long run. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I want to thank Lee Chen for inviting you. Thank you for staying late on a Friday evening in China. And, uh, you know, you can follow Ding Ding on his Twitter handle, Chen Ding Ding. Um, he's a he's great, get, great guest. Thanks for coming on the show, Ding Ding. Thank you, Ding Ding. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Behind the Markets and Sirius XM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.